First Kings chapter 2. This is the word of our God. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you know also what Joab the son of Zariah did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist, and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahenium. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him. But bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray now for wisdom and discernment that we might apply it to ourselves rightly by understanding what you would have us to learn. So, Father, be with us in this hour, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Second Kings 2 is uh, one of those, those chapters that is uh, often uh, seen as a, a good opportunity to smear David. Um, it, it's viewed as David at a, a very low point spiritually and indeed of Solomon starting off bad in his uh, office. And uh, you know, having been here through First and Second Samuel with me, I, I am not opposed to seeing David sinning where he is sinning. 
Um, but I, I think we need to be careful to also not read our own sensibilities into a situation wrongly. And so as we look at this chapter, uh, many even good commentators see this as just a, a horrible ending. Here is David at his worst, and here's Solomon not much better. And I think quite the opposite. Here we have uh, David and Solomon together presenting us with a very important image, a, a shadowy type of Christ. I think what the author of Kings is seeking to push into our minds at this point is the fact that even two of the arguably best kings in Israel's history together present uh, an image of Christ uh, that either one of them couldn't represent. And so here in this chapter, we actually have them side by side, both with the throne. And we're seeing here two sides of of Christ in this one chapter presented to us. If we reflect on David in all of Samuel, and we're to ask, not, not making moral judgments in this moment, but just looking at the flavor of First and Second Samuel and describe David's life. Uh, I think one excellent way to describe his life would be a man of constant sorrows and acquainted with grief. That David's whole life was one of suffering from the moment he was anointed at, what, 14, 16, whatever age he was, until the day of his death, he, he barely had a peaceful moment. He was a man who, uh, even in gaining the throne, did so through a lot of suffering and hardship. Now, a lot of that's brought on by his own sin, but he presents to us, in one sense, the, the greatest Old Testament example, other than perhaps Job, of Christ's humiliation, that Christ lived a life of constant grief and sorrow, and David represents that to us. Here's a king whose whole life before and after the throne uh, is is one of sorrow and hardship. Uh, But but he has unfinished business, and that's what chapter 2 of 1 Kings is showing us. David can represent Christ only so far, but as the man of sorrow, he gets to a certain point and there is unfinished business. And so if we were to look at Christ and only think of his uh, humiliation up to the grave and stopped the gospel there, there would be unfinished business, wouldn't there? Uh, Think of what Paul says of Christ, that if he is not risen, we are of all people the most to be pitied that the gospel is incomplete if all you have is a, is a Messiah who is in a state of humiliation. So we need a Messiah who is raised from the dead on the third day, who ascended into heaven and sits at God's right hand in his exaltation. And if you were to think of all the kings of Old Testament Israel and ask which king best represents Christ's exaltation, Solomon is surely that king. Even with all his sins, the flavor of his life as presented in Kings and Chronicles is one of glory. The the glory doesn't disappear from his life even 
even with his sins, God, out of love for David and the covenant he had made, waited for that glory to dim until Solomon died. But isn't that astonishing? Even with him being a sinner, he is this this representative of the exalted Christ. He knows no war in his days. There is no poverty after a certain period of time in his land. And he is literally uh, the king whose name is Peace. And so in these two kings together, we have the humiliated Christ and the exalted Christ foreshadowed before us by sinful men. And here, uh, that, that aspect of David having incomplete business and Solomon completing the work which David had to do. That's the central thing I think we need to see in Second King, uh, First Kings chapter 2. Now, that doesn't mean none of those unfinished aspects of business for, for David were because David sinned. Uh, and it doesn't mean that Solomon uh, handled everything perfectly. They're, they're shadows. They're not the real Messiah. But here, I want us to especially be seeing uh, that this is to represent to us the fact that this unfinished business will be completed by the Prince of Peace. So this evening, as we look at the first 12 verses, because we're going to keep seeing that through till next week, but this week, just the first 12 verses, I want us to see David's paternal instruction, David's parting judgments, and David's passing eulogy. Uh, So David's uh, parting instructions we have in verses 1 through 4. And David, in his parting instructions, although he was not the perfect king and his son will not be the perfect king, nonetheless, in this transition, we have ideal kingship succinctly presented before us. Uh, David begins by reminding Solomon that all earthly kings just like all creatures in this fallen world, will die. Notice how David mentions his own death. Uh, he, he does not say, I am about to die. He says, I go the way of all the earth. And if you wanted in communicating your death to communicate to your child that they will someday be in your shoes, you could not pick a better way to phrase it. I'm going the way that all earth goes. You're, you're going to go this way too someday. And so David says, be strong and prove yourself a man. You're going to die someday. You're not invincible. And so to be king, you're going to need to be courageous because death lies around every corner as far as you know. And so you need to be a strong leader. As Solomon is not invincible, he as king then, if he is to be a good king, uh, needs first to be courageous. And the actions of a a good king will always draw attack, won't they? David was the man after God's own heart, and he was hated on every side. Uh, Hezekiah, Josiah, the, the other two kings who arguably are presented as better kings even than David, uh, still have enemies and adversaries and people who are against them from without the church and within it. 
so the one who would be king must be courageous. If he's ready to do what needs to be done, even in the face of possible death, he needs to be courageous. Uh, but to not simply be courageous, but a godly king, Solomon also needs to be a king who is a man of the word. And notice how David piles up biblical ways of saying the Bible. He says here um, that God's statutes, God's commandments, God's judgments, God's testimonies as written in the law of Moses. He is getting at the different aspects. Don't just be a a legalist and know the, the laws, the commands. Also, be one who uh, has good judgment, statutes. Now, these all have nuances. And as king, he's going to have to know how to negotiate all of that and present God's law correctly. So he needs to be a man of the word. And clearly, verse 3, is David drawing Solomon and you and I to what God said to Joshua so long before. Go and read Joshua 1. And God, in a very similar way, says that his servant must be a man of the word. And if he is a man of the word, God says that I will be with you wherever you go. I will be behind your victories as you remain faithful to my word. And that is what David wants Solomon to remember. When talking about godly kingship in the Bible... That we have to remember that Deuteronomy 17 described this as the chief and first responsibility of a godly king as opposed to a worldly king. God says in Deuteronomy 17 verse 18 that the king is to write himself a copy of this book of the law and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God And be careful to observe all the words of this law, these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, but that he may not turn aside from the commandment. So here, a courageous king, the ideal king is one who is courageous. The ideal king is a king who is of the word. And then David adds another thing here, that the godly king must be one who remembers God's covenant promises. And we see that in verse 4, when David reflects, God made this promise to me of a, a king to be on a throne. And yet, as we reflect on that larger uh, chapter of God making the promise through David, God makes it clear David's sons are going to fail. And then he still says there's going to be an eternal throne. The covenant itself reminds us of God's graciousness. And so the ideal king is one who doesn't just have courage and boldness, doesn't just uh, study and reflect on the law, but as he reflects on God's commandments, remembers the gracious gospel of God. That as he seeks as a king to uphold God's standard, he also reflects that God is merciful to him. He needs to be a man of the word and a man who remembers specifically the covenant. This is David's paternal instruction then. It's one that is to humble any king who hears it with his creatureliness 
and his frailty, his finiteness, while directing the king to the rule of the king of kings. And that's the ideal king of Israel, a king who remembers that he is not the ultimate king. Remember that verse I just read from Deuteronomy 17, verse 20, God says, part of the reason for being a man of the word is so that he not lift himself above his brethren. What does God say and accept? You may be king, but you're just king over your brethren under me. And David wants Solomon to remember that as well. Well, David immediately moves from his parting words to Solomon to uh, uh, his uh, parting judgments. And that's verses 5 through 9. And here's Here's where we struggle with the things David says sometimes. It seems violent, perhaps, or uh, vindictive. And we have to ask ourselves, to what extent is that the case? Maybe there's a mixed bag here in the things David says of good and bad. Uh, But we have to think about that. And so David here uh, is showing Solomon, here's the list of tasks that I didn't accomplish that I didn't complete, that I didn't finish. We say, why didn't you finish them, David? You had, in one of these men's instance, you had 30-something years to complete this. Actually, we know exactly how many years. He had, uh, he had 33 years to complete one of these tasks, and he didn't do it. Well, he didn't do it because of his own sin. But that doesn't mean the task doesn't need to be completed. David's work as king is incomplete. It takes Solomon, the the king of exaltation, to complete the work. And so here we have David uh, with his parting judgments, three judgments he gives in parting. We'll start with the nice one that's right in the middle. Verse 7, we have David's blessing. Uh, Show kindness to this, this household of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who sit at your table. That's, that's David's way of saying, treat this family as if they're your adopted brothers. Why? Because David was on the run. His own son was out to kill him. And this man came along and br- brought supplies and refuge for David. And David isn't going to forget that. But how is that an, uh, an incomplete task on David's part. David has had this man and his family at his table since he returned from his exile. So how is this an incomplete task? Clearly David's intent is that the blessing outlive him. That this be a blessing that lasts as long as the parties involved. And so it's an incomplete task because he's trying to show us that blessing isn't a fickle and temporary thing. The Holy Spirit's showing us blessing that goes beyond David's death and continues. Well, that's going to take courage for Solomon because whenever you bless one party and not others, you have jealousy come up. Anyone who's in in any type of leadership, and maybe that's parenting, maybe that's as a teacher in some format, maybe it's a, a supervisor at work. If you if you praise one person, someone else gets angry. And so Solomon needs to have courage as king to do the right thing here and present blessing to the faithful 
of the king. We can look at that and praise God, not only for an example for us, and it is an example for us, that we live in a, a society where um, any, any parenting or pet training or whatever, you know, fill in the blank, it's supposed to be all positive and never have judgment or criticism. And, and that's, that's wrong, but we could go too far the other way, couldn't we, and say it's all judgment, it's all criticism, and never give praise and blessing where it's needed. And David sets the example where we have a reason to bless and praise, we ought to do it. But of course, the Holy Spirit showing us something even more important through David here, and that is causing us to look ahead and see Christ blessing his blood-bought children. And those who are blessed by Christ's blood will not be cut off by his death. Rather, when Christ dies and rises again, we receive through his death the, the blessing of all eternity in his presence and at his table. What a glorious thing. David, in wanting the blessing to outlive him, is pointing us to a king who can make blessings eternal. Secondly, in his judgments, then, are, is, is what we might think of as more negative, the punishment. And we look here at verses 5 and 6. David also left incomplete this for 33 years, remember, this work of judging Joab. Uh, Joab had, um, had a, a vengeful spirit, and although there is a lot of positive about Joab in Samuel in terms of his loyalty to David, he also put David's claim to the throne in jeopardy by committing murder in a way that reflected on David. And so you have these two generals of Israel, uh, one of them being Abner, who David makes clear was an innocent man. When he says righteous, he means innocent. He didn't deserve to be killed like this. And that tells us something about God's view of war versus peacetime. That there is a place for war and the soldier can be innocent. Abner was a man of war, um, but he didn't deserve the death penalty, David is saying. And this other man was a man of war, uh, and yet he also did not, Amasa did not deserve the death penalty. But Joab does, says David, because Joab waited till the war was over, hunted the men down, and killed them in cold blood. And so, as God, in his covenant with creation at the time of Noah, declared that all mankind had a responsibility to execute the murderer, blood for blood. So David says, this is now your responsibility, Solomon. Why didn't David do it himself? Maybe he was scared of Joab. Maybe he was showing... Joab, uh, some, some special uh, uh, leeway because Joab was his, his close relative. Uh, it doesn't matter. David was wrong to have not done it. And yet he does desire that justice be brought. And so Solomon is to bring that. 
And uh, that too is going to take courage, isn't it? Solomon is about to put the top and most important general that Israel has had in the entire reign of David to death. And that man surely has followers. So David, uh, Solomon needs to show courage here. But, but again, it takes David and Solomon to present us with an image of Christ and his messianic glory. Uh, because we know that Christ in his humiliation, we look at that and we say, well, uh, when he was here, he didn't bring perfect justice to earth. Why didn't he set all things right? He was here for 33 years and there's still wars and rumors of wars and pain and suffering. And it sometimes feels like the wicked are prospering and justice is left undone. So if we only look at Christ and his humiliation, we might say, well, he's failed at justice. But that's not the whole picture. It takes both David and Solomon to get us to see that Christ in his exaltation, the judge of the earth, he is coming again. And no Joab in human history will escape the final judgment. No one will slip away because they had the right contacts. They were friends with the right ruler, the right leader, the right dictator. None will escape. Christ the King will bring perfect justice one day. And then in verses 8 and 9, David's final uh, judgments here, or his, uh, his uh, parting judgments, we, f- we find, uh, here's the hardest one, isn't it? Is David passing the buck? Uh, is David sidestepping and proving himself vindictive? We read in verses 8 and 9 of this man, man Shimei. Remember when David was fleeing from Absalom, Shimei stood and... Uh, spat and threw rocks and cursed David's name. And uh, when David comes back from his exile, he pardons the man there that day as David reflects on here. And so we read this and maybe we're tempted to view this not as a godly action, but more like a godfather action. Uh, An old man on his deathbed saying to his son, remember that man? who cursed me that one time, bring his whole family down in blood. That, that, that's how it reads, doesn't it? And it can feel like it's David, David twisting things. He said, well, I said I wouldn't kill you. I never said Solomon wouldn't. Gotcha. So it can very much look like David in a, a negative light. And yet, uh, while that's a possibility, David is a sinner, I think there's another possibility. And that is that what David chose to do with Shimei is not do something out of personal vengeance. But what he's saying to Solomon is, uphold God's law. Exodus 22 verse 28 declared that cursing a ruler violated God's law. And Exodus 22:28 actually compares, puts in the same sentence, cursing God or cursing God's anointed. To do the one is like doing the other. And where did we see that attitude previously? We saw it with David, didn't we? 
Saul is out to kill David. And he will not do anything, not even curse Saul. Because Saul is the Lord's anointed. So it could be David sinning here and being vindictive. It could be David saying, I didn't judge him because I'm not impartial. But you are called to be impartial with the wisdom God has given you. Judge according to the scriptures and see that this man, in effect, cursed God when he cursed the ruler. You you might look at those verses and decide David was sinning. In which case, hallelujah for Christ, who is always the righteous king. Or you might choose to see it the way I just presented it, and you still walk away saying, hallelujah, for how David reminds us of Christ, who will return with perfect righteousness to judge, who will bring perfect justice against all who rebelled against his father and cursed his father in this life. And then finally, in verses 10 and 10 through 12, we have David's passing eulogy. And here we have the standard set for the rest of the book of Kings, the standard uh, for each king that will follow. Will they meet this standard or not? And it's in the form of the covenant chorus line. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Some of the kings we're going to look at over the next year and a half, two years, are going to get, in essence, that chorus line. They rested with their father, David, and were buried in the city of David. Others will not. And what is very clear is that the Holy Spirit is using that as a way to show us the heart of the king. We can't read their hearts. And and to be honest, some of these men, as I read Kings, I think as I'm reading it, this guy's not not a believer. And then he gets the chorus line. Maybe it has a couple of nuances, but he gets the chorus line. And you think, I would have judged his heart wrong. These men who have faith, who like David are men who repent when they sin, these receive such a phrase. Others will not. David, David rests with his fathers. When we talk about the believer dying, we do not talk about uh, a ceasing, do we? We talk about immediately being with Christ in glory and the body still united to Christ, rests in the grave until the resurrection. This was the case for David, and his sons will be judged on the same standard. We'll pick up with verse 12, Lord willing, next week. But but see, even in David's death, the firmly established throne of Solomon. With all the sins we're going to see connected to Solomon, the beginning of it, recalls the covenant promise, doesn't it? Just in this very section, David recalled the covenant promise that those who follow the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. And we're we're going to see Solomon doesn't meet that standard, but 
He begins with a firmly established throne. Something else David never had. Once again, we see David's incomplete business. The throne was never secure with him. But here, Solomon begins secure. And in David's death and that establishing of Solomon's throne, then we are reminded again of the king whose kingdom is forever and ever, whose throne is eternally secure, and whose table we are about to approach. Let's pray.